0: Yes, let's go. Good evening, and welcome to the Cambridge Union's third debate of Michaelmas term. We're delighted to welcome the range of distinguished academics and philosophers this evening to debate and discuss the motion This House believes God is not a delusion. The format is slightly different tonight and hopefully should allow a little bit more audience interaction. We're going to have four speeches, two on either side, all at 15 minutes in length, and halfway through the debate we're going to open up for points on the floor. It's a really big, busy house tonight and there's quite a few people in all the floor rooms. So when we do break to questions from the floor. I'm going to ask if you can use a microphone handed to you by the stewards so people in all the other rooms can hear. Uh, now, to open the case for the proposition that this house believes God is not a delusion, we're delighted I'm delighted to introduce Peter Williams, who is a philosopher who works for the Christian charity, the Demaris Trust. An
1: author of A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism*. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, delighted to be here. According to the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as you'll see from your uh, handout, a delusion is defined as a false belief. Based on incorrect inference about external reality that is firmly sustained despite what almost everyone else believes and despite what constitutes incontrovertible and obvious proof or evidence to the contrary. The belief is not one ordinarily accepted by other members of the person's culture or subculture. For example, it's not an article of religious faith. Unfortunately for our opponents this evening, theism is an article of religious faith that is ordinarily accepted by people in our culture, but which isn't necessarily inferred from external reality. Hence, it is, by definition, not a delusion. While we forego this purely definitional victory... It does seem fair to note that since the opposition claim that theism isn't merely intellectually mistaken but delusory, they thereby shoulder the burden of offering incontrovertible and obvious proof for the non-existence of God. Since we don't know of any incontrovertible disproof of God, rather than attack straw men at this point, we'll simply argue for theism. For if theism is true, it can't be a delusion. So permit me to sketch the three arguments for God whose propositions are listed on your handout, beginning with a moral argument. One, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Two at least one objective moral value exists. Three, therefore, God exists. It's important not to confuse this argument with the false claim that we must believe in God in order to know or to do the right thing. Now, what does it mean to claim that a moral value is objective? Well, suppose one person thinks that the sun goes around the earth whilst another thinks the opposite. In this case, we know that the earth goes around the sun. Those who believe otherwise, however sincerely, are wrong. Moreover, coming to know that the earth goes around the sun is a matter of discovering truth, not inventing it. Moral objectivism says that ethics is about discovering moral truths, truths that exist even if we fail to discern them. And according to moral objectivism, there are genuine moral disagreements. And the observation that people sometimes have different moral opinions just goes to show that our moral beliefs can be either correct or incorrect according to the moral facts of the matter. So, are there any objective moral facts? Well, those who point to the reality of evil in the world as a basis for arguing against the existence of God certainly think so. For nothing can be objectively evil if there are no objective values. John Cottingham reports... That the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of value is correct, close quote. for example, the atheist Peter Cave, who chairs the humanist philosopher 's group for the British Humanist Association, defends objective moral values by appealing to his intuitions. One of skeptical arguments may be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong. We are more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument is sound. Torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong. The properly basic moral intuition that torturing innocent children for fun is wrong isn't undermined by the existence of the psychopath who enjoys torturing children. By the principle of credulity, torturing an innocent child for fun clearly isn't merely something that stops a child functioning normally, an empirical observation, or merely something we dislike because of our evolutionary history, or merely something that our society has decided to discourage. Rather, torturing an innocent child for fun is objectively wrong. So at least one thing is objectively wrong, therefore moral subjectivism is false. Now, some moral intuitions are very specific. For example, it's evil to use children to clear minefields, as was done in the Iran-Iraq war. And some intuitions are general. For example, it's always right to choose the lesser of two evils. Now, of course, of course, our moral intuitions could be mistaken, but this very admission of fallibility presupposes moral objectivism. For if moral subjectivism were true, no moral claims could be mistaken. As the atheist philosopher Russ Shafer landau writes, subjectivism's picture of ethics as a wholly conventional enterprise entails a kind of moral infallibility for individuals or societies this sort of infallibility is hard to swallow, Close quote. Finally, if moral objectivism were false, it couldn't be true that we objectively ought to consider arguments against objectivism, or that we ought to consider them fairly. Knowing this, we see the impossibility of justifying subjectivism, for to embrace an argument for subjectivism would be to take the self-contrary position that A, there are no objective moral values, but that B, we objectively ought to accept subjectivism. Therefore, the second premise of the moral argument seems to me to be secure. Turning to the first premise... Many atheists acknowledge that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. For example, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote that he was, quote, extremely embarrassing that God does not exist. For there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be any good a priori, since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. Close quote. An objective moral value is a transcendent ideal that prescribes, that obligates our behavior. But an ideal implies a mind. A prescription requires a prescriber, and an obligation is contingent upon a person, As H.P. Owen argues, quote, on the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. Secondly, a cosmological argument. The Leibnizian type of cosmological argument builds upon the so-called principle of sufficient reason. One, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Secondly, the universe exists. Third, therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Four, If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Five, therefore the explanation of the universe's existence is God. Now, since the universe's existence is rather obvious, non-theists must surely deny premises one or four in this argument to rationally avoid believing in God. Well, many philosophers think that premise one, the principle of sufficient reason, Is is self-evident. Let me illustrate. Imagine finding a translucent ball on the forest floor. Thank you. Whilst out hiking one day, you initially wonder how it came to be there. If a fellow hiker said, it just exists, inexplicably, don't worry about it. You wouldn't take him seriously. Well, suppose we increase the size of this ball you've discovered so that it's as big as the planet. That doesn't remove the need to explain it. Suppose it were the size of the entire universe. Well, how does that remove the need for explanation? Same problem, surely. Turning to premise four, that is, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God... Surely this is synonymous with the standard atheistic claim that if God doesn't exist, then the universe has no explanation of its existence. The only other alternative to theism is to claim that the universe has an explanation in the necessity of its own nature. But this is a very radical step, and we can't actually think of any contemporary atheist who takes it. After all, it's coherent to imagine, say, a universe made from a wholly different collection of quarks than the collection that actually exists. But such a universe would be a different universe. So universes clearly don't exist necessarily. Suppose I ask you to loan me a certain book, but you say... I don't have a copy right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy, and then I'll lend it to you. Suppose your friend says the same thing to you, and so on, and so on. Surely two things are clear. First, if this process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum, I'll never get the book. Second, if I got the book... The process that led to me getting it can't have gone on ad infinitum. Somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had the book without having to borrow it. <laughs> Likewise, argues philosopher Richard Pertill, consider any contingent reality. He says, the same two principles apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing has existence, then the process can't have gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. End quote. Now, a necessary being explaining all physical reality can't itself be a physical reality. The only remaining possibilities are an abstract object or an immaterial mind. But abstract objects, such as some mathematicians would say of the number seven, for example, are causally impotent. Therefore, the explanation of the universe's existence uh, is a necessarily existent, transcendent mind. And finally, an ontological argument. As the greatest possible being, God is, by definition, a necessary being. And a necessary being is, by definition, a being that must exist if its existence is possible. Hence we argue, one, if it is possible that God exists, God exists. Two, it is possible that God exists, so thirdly, therefore God exists. Now, a great making property is a property that, A, endows its bearer with some measure of objective value, and which, B, admits of a logical maximum. A sock isn't more valuable than you because it is smellier than you. And however smelly a sock you imagine, it is always possible to imagine a smellier one. Smelliness is not a great-making property. On the other hand, power is a great-making property, one that has a logical maximum in the concept of being omnipotent. Likewise, necessary being is the maximum instantiation of a great making property. So, even if, say, Immanuel Kant were right to argue that saying something exists doesn't add to our knowledge of its properties, to say that something exists necessarily certainly does add to our knowledge of its properties. Hence, most philosophers agree that if God's existence is even possible, then as a necessary being, He must exist. Unlike the tooth fairy, God couldn't just happen not to exist despite his existence being possible. Moreover, think about the fact that humans surely exhibit non-maximal degrees of great making properties, such as power and knowledge and goodness. And I think this supports the hypothesis that maximal degrees of great making properties can coexist over the hypothesis that they can't. Finally, of course, the moral and cosmological arguments that we just looked at, by confirming various aspects of the theistic hypothesis, provide us with independent grounds for thinking that the crucial second premise of this ontological argument is more plausible than its denial. In conclusion, to show that belief in God is a delusion... The opposition must both rebut our cumulative case for theism and offer incontrovertible and obvious proof of God's non-existence. Until and unless they accomplish that task, I recommend the motion to the House. Thank you. Yeah, very good. you. Thank you. very good speaker. Thank you.